Hello. This week I am joined by Dr. Kelly Donahoe. She is a licensed psychologist and her work centers on research, relationships, and consultation. But this chat, oh, it left me feeling great. We talk all about the mind, we talk about psychology, about modern day and how it affects our mindset and relationships. And Kelly also talks to us about unconscious bias and fluid EQ, which is going to be the basis of some upcoming books, which you need to look out for. As always, follow me on Instagram at Healthy Balance with Emily. Follow the podcast at Tribe Talk Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. But without further ado, here is Kelly. This week we've got the incredible Kelly Donahoe. Um, tell me a little bit about you and what, how, how you got started doing what you do. And uh, yeah, put your life in a nutshell a little bit. <laughs> okay, I can do that. Um, I am a psychologist now, but I started off studying art uh, and education. I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And I found myself sitting on the floor with the children, asking them questions about their lives. And I was working at an inner city school at the time, and there was a lot of violence. A lot of parents were incarcerated. uh, And I couldn't understand how the kids could focus on math or, you know, whatever I was teaching them. These were second and third graders because they had so much going on in their lives. Um, one little child in the morning looked very upset because there had been guns. He had he had heard fighting outside of his house and couldn't sleep. And the teacher that I was working with said, I think you need to be a therapist. I, I don't think teaching is right for you. Uh, because I would spend my whole day worrying and trying to talk to them. And she said, you know, you just got to keep moving forward. So I went back to school and I studied to be a child life specialist. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. It's really amazing. So you work in hospitals with kids that are going through procedures and you try to help them prepare mentally for, you know, sort of invasive procedures that they're getting something that might be painful. You sit with them and you work through it with them. You prepare them and you have all these really cool techniques to help them get ready for whatever it is. Um, so I, I did that. I got my degree in that and did that for a little while. But then I realized I wanted to work with kids when they also weren't in the hospital. So I had to go back to school and get another degree in counseling psychology. So I did that and I loved it so much. I just kept going and then I got my doctorate and that's what I do now. So I can work with kids in schools or hospitals or wherever I want. And uh, actually, I work more now with adolescents and women, grown-up women. They're my favorite. So I worked for a long time in colleges, and I have a private practice now where I work with women and teenagers, and I run groups, and I consult with companies too because in my work, I – found that uh, a lot of companies have trouble with diversity and inclusion. They have big problems. 
And so I go to companies and I help them. I have workshops or if there's a problem, a sensitive issue, I come in and I help them sort it through and get to wherever they need to go in as best a way possible without explosions or problems. So, uh, and I also teach and I'm, and I'm writing a book about how to be a better human being, how to connect better with other people. Uh, and it's, it's based on my work in diversity and inclusion. It's really trying to give people some education so that they can think about our race and culture and ethnicity and sexuality and all the parts of ourselves and how we can see that in ourselves and be more aware and then connect better with other people. So I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting here needing to be edited. So I'm working on that. <laughs> so that's what's happening. And I'm mom and I wife occasionally. <laughs> I love that. So it really sounds like you've kind of like through since that first foray into art, you've really followed your passion. Is that right, really? Yes. Just yes. I, I, I think the best and worst thing about me is I only do what I want to do. You sound yep. just like me. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. um, people have said that to me in awe, and people have said that to me like spitting angry. Mm. Um, and I used to think, no, you should do more what other people want or need. And I do a plenty of what other people need. I, obviously being a mom, that's like a hundred percent of that job. Mm -hmm. But in other areas of my life, I prefer it too. When other people also do what they need. I, I like yeah. that. Do you think I, that people I want become, that. do you think that people become, you know, when they when they follow that is that something that you would you would encourage in the people that you see do you do you do you find that people get quite stuck in what they should do and who they should be yes yes so actually i'm working on a project now called radically selfish and when this book is finished i'm going to write that's my passion book and the idea is that if we each step aside from the constructs that contain us, you know, the things we feel like we should do, um, then we live more authentically. My whole life, my whole life's work, every piece of it is about helping people live more authentically. So whatever in my clinical work, if you're stuck in a place, it's generally because you are feeling like there's constraints on you and sometimes they're real and sometimes they're not. And so figuring that out, I call it looking at the matrix. It's a reference to that 90s movie, The Matrix, where, <laughs> you know, people couldn't see in the movie what was real and what wasn't real, like real in quotes. And I, I think we all do that a lot. We see what we're told to see. And that's, that stops people from living authentic lives, from little things like, what clothes do I want to wear to big things like, can I explore my sexuality? I mean, whoa, that's not fair. That's my whole life's work. That's everything. Yes. And I believe that depression, anxiety, a lot of mental health concerns, not all, of course, but many can stem from living 
a life that doesn't fit what's inside of you. I mean, that's, there's friction there, constant friction between what you want to be or how you see your life and what it is. And I think that's bold. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I find it really fascinating the way that mental health um, illnesses like depression and, and anxiety seem to have almost become so normal for people to have now um, mm. because of the day-to-day and because of the way that we've kind of built up this society around us. Um, and I'm never really sure whether it's something that perhaps is, we, we, we know more about it. It's, it's there because people know that it's a real thing or if it's something that comes with the modern day. I think it's both. I think, well, there's more people and there's quite a lot of stress, uh, I always wish I could go back in time. I wonder this a lot. Do we have more stress? Do we have different stress? We know one thing for sure. We had less downtime, thinking time, you could say, than any time there's ever been. So even when you were busy and you had to wash clothes by hand or dig in a field or all the things, the manual labor, but your mind was free. So I'm not saying do I want to return to a time when we were physically, you know, working to the bone? No. However, there was a lot of mind space, a lot of thinking, a lot of quiet. And we definitely don't have that. And there is a direct correlation between downtime and better mood. We know that, but our lives do not allow for that. It's wonderful to be connected, but the constant accessibility is problematic and it doesn't allow us to do one thing at a time. Our mind is happiest when it can do one thing at a time. In fact, in therapy, we call it one mindfully and it's a goal. (laughs) Used to be the norm. Now it's something you have to do, right? I just read yesterday in this magazine, tips for technology-free living, plug your phone in over here, walk over there. And I thought, that's great, but what does that mean about who we are and how much our minds have to process in every moment? So I do think depressive symptoms and anxiety. And, and can I just say that I think in my way of conceptualizing it, depression and anxiety are married to each other in a really tight way. And what is one or the other who even knows it's sort of a false separation they feed on each other. Some people express one more than the other, but usually both are hanging out. So, you know, that constant buzz, it, it, you know, our minds never get time to reset. And so I do think that that's one of the reasons that depression and anxiety on the rise. And another reason is because of the existential angst of constant movement and the expectation of rising up constantly. Um, I love the idea of getting things done at the same time. Are we all supposed to reach this height of, I don't know, influencer or whatever, whatever it is. I, I mean, no, there's, you know, 
there seems to be no in between. And that's a lot of pressure and stress. And it leaves a lot of people looking at social media, for instance, and saying, oh, I'm not reaching that. And then there can be a struggle internally about life and what my life is. Is my life, you know, I'm here. A lot of people that I work with say, I'm raising these kids. I'm in my house by myself all the time. I'm not. I'm not a Pinterest goddess. I'm not doing these things. And then there can be a question that arises from that. Is there something I'm supposed to be doing? And so I think the combination of these pressures, constantly being available and expected to respond and never having downtime really lead to what I would call an epidemic of depression and anxiety. It is incredibly high. The numbers are higher than a person would think they ought to be. Yeah, we we live in this kind of instant gratification of a world, don't we, where everything's at our fingertips. So my friend, she is challenging herself to, I don't know how long she's doing it for, but not looking at her phone for the first half an hour of, of the time she is awake from. Because she's somebody who, she uh, she has a lot of um, pressures. She's got people to look mm-hmm. after and things like that. Um, and a lot of her time is spent having to be at the end of the phone or, you know, monitoring somebody, um, because of their, their, their health. And so she is automatically kind of programmed into being somebody that's kind of always on Instagram and, you know, mm-hmm. always, uh, always available. And she's decided just to turn the phone off for half an hour or overnight, obviously, and then not look at it for half an hour after she got get gets up. And she said, already, she's absolutely feeling so much more, so much better. Oh. Something so small can be so beneficial for your mindset, which I and think is really interesting. It is, especially because when you said that, I felt my anxiety go up. I thought 30 minutes, and then I thought 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> what does that say about me? But you know, that just time for your mind to wake up. There was a study actually, they just recently published a study uh, about the benefits and um, potential problems with looking at your phone. The first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, Um, not just for mood, but for things you wouldn't think of maybe like your eyes. Um, you know, that waking up first thing in the morning and looking at a screen, of course, has impacts on your vision and your eye, you know, just adjusting to the day. And um, it's interesting. Do I think it's all negative? No, but I think that we should maybe be really thoughtful about where we place technology in our lives. Yeah. And I think what, what, what use it has as well. I mean, I think that and I, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, there's, there is a really great element of connectivity on social media. If you're struggling with mental health or illness, or, you know, you feel like you are alone, having access to groups or accounts that make you feel less so, and make you feel like you're part of something and instead of being outcast is, is definitely beneficial for mental health. But I think, yeah, like you said, you've got to, I think you've almost got to sieve out what works for you and what doesn't. And somebody said on Twitter the other day, uh, how do I stop 
it was something like, how do I stop this platform from not impacting me so much in a negative way? Mm. And I just responded by saying, unfollow things that don't make you feel good. And it's a really simple idea, but yet some people still need to hear that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's, so that sounds simple. But when you said that, I thought that's much of what my therapy work is. It's, Mm. it's not clicking an unfollow button, but the same exact concept. Stop doing the things that don't make you feel good. I mean, if, if people heard that and they took it in, I would not have a, a job largely. And that would be fine. Because, you know, my job is to make myself sort of pointless. But that, that is a huge part of why people come to therapy, that there are patterns. I mean, we all do it, right? I do it. Everyone does it. It's not like, oh, you know, it's so easy to do. But we do things that aren't good for us or that don't feel good. And if it doesn't feel good, it's generally not good for you. But we get afraid. We get afraid to let go of the job that pays the rent, but makes us, you know, maybe it's a bad situation or we've outgrown it or our creativity side is dying. And I'm not saying, oh, let's just start all being artists. Obviously that's not realistic, but what we do is we close doors that maybe could stay cracked open or we could peek in the door. We don't even let ourselves peek because we get afraid, you know? So we just slam, slam the door. And, you know, there's, there's uh, there's something to be said for just wondering what's out there and looking. Yeah, you know. and I love what you said about that because when I when I was younger and I was um, I had a really bad eating disorder and um, had to get hospital treatment and things like that. But because I'd grown up with this eating disorder from kind of the age of fifteen to my early twenties. I didn't know it was a part of me. I didn't know who I was without it. And what kept me ill for, you know, a few years or kept me in that real recovery state of, you know, forward and backwards was, I don't know who I am without it. I don't know how I cope with things without it. And, and fear is a real, um, sticking point sometimes for people because it's almost like if you're in a bad relationship, you stay in that bad relationship because you don't know what will happen without it. You know, there's, there's comfort in the uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's definitely, I had a professor that used to always say to us, be careful what you ask your client to give up because you don't know. You, you, so you see smoking and you think, oh, well, obviously that has to go. Well, okay, but why? Why is the person doing this behavior? So now I see everything as a coping skill and it, it just levels the playing field, whether it's whatever, drugs, you know, um, restricting eating, whatever, whatever it is, um, you know, acting out. There's, we all do things and you know, we tend to look at other people and judge their coping skills. Oh, oh, look at that one. But we all do them because we all need coping skills. So when I conceptualize it that way, it takes some of the heat away from it and that helps. And then people can look at their coping skills and decide if they want to keep them or not, because you know what, 
it does feel sometimes like your coping skills define you, but they don't. I mean, they are behaviors and behaviors can change, you know, but you have to think about what you're going to replace it with. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What, what? Go ahead. Go. Sorry. No, you finish what you're saying. I was just going to say that it's, you have to think about that because sometimes we ask people to give up something. We don't think about what they're going to do. They need to do something. We all need to cope and something else could come in there that you don't even like more. So you have to be pretty careful about, you know, that space in between. We all need to cope. And so thinking about ways that we can do it that work for us, even if other people might not like them, but that work for us. That's so what, what we're all doing. What would you say that you, would you then, so if somebody came to you and they, and they had a coping skill that they wanted to um, manage or, or replace, would you, would you encourage them to replace them with something that was more positive for them or it, would that be what your yep. direction would be? Yes. So a lot of work in therapy over, I don't know, the whole time therapy has existed has been, let's get rid of that thing. Well, <laughs> That's why people end up needing to come back because when the poop hits the fan, they're going to need that coping skill and you're not going to be there at their house or wherever they are. And guess what? They're going to be standing outside smoking a cigarette because they're a human being and then they're going to feel bad and then the cycle starts up again. So yes, exactly. So instead of saying, let's get rid of that, I a thing that really can help people is let's replace it. Let's figure out when you feel the need to use that coping skill. And then what can, what could stand in that place that you would feel better about? That's really, it's not an easy test. Sometimes it takes a little while to come up with something, but people always have ideas. And then sometimes you have to try a couple different things, but then they land on something usually has nothing to do with me. They come in one week and they say, guess what? This week, I realized if I um, walk around the building really fast three times, I feel better. Well, I didn't come up with that. They just, it happened by accident or they did it and then we know what to do. So, you know, it's not, it's not a simple process and I don't want to leave that impression, but people do come up with things and then they're not left with just the idea of, be strong or something like that, which makes my lip go up yucky. Like what? So I I feel sometimes with that, it's you almost, you're almost telling people that do, do have these, these coping mechanisms that they're powerless. You know, you, you can't have it. It's like with children, you're not allowed it. And (laughs) so what immediately happens, you want it even more. Um, Yes. And I mean, I mentioned we've got a six month old puppy and if we take something away from him, he wants it even more. So it's about kind of changing up, you know, okay, well, you can't, you can't have my phone, but you can have this treat. (laughs) Maybe that would be better and everyone's happy. Mm -hmm. And humans are sometimes a little bit like, like that. There was a, there was, um, there was actually a program here i mean i didn't really watch any of it it's not the kind of thing my husband would watch but it was called how to uh, train your baby like a dog (laughs) 
And it was this woman who has got, who was an expert dog trainer who decided that the positive reinforcement techniques that you train dogs with would be a good way to train children. Now, I can't tell you what the outcome of that was or whether it was good, but it was, um, it was an interesting thought. <laughs> you know what? I have one child that we can only use positive reinforcement. Punishment doesn't work doesn't work at all. She doesn't care. And the other one, even the idea of doing something not a hundred percent correct is enough for her. So I would also say that everyone's different, but we do all need coping skills Yeah, because life is challenging. And for some people, you know, they could take a deep breath and that's that. Well, I mean, that doesn't work for everybody and that doesn't work all the time. Hmm. So yeah, we need to find things that fall within our range of acceptable. And what your range of acceptable is might be different from mine. That's okay too. You know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's okay. How would you, what would you say the first steps to, say, say if any of my listeners were going through a time where some, one of, one of their behavior patterns wasn't serving them or mm-hmm. they wanted to change the way that they automatically reacted to something what would be the first step that they could take is it is it is it becoming more aware of the of the triggers or is it kind of replacing what would you recommend so the first step you just said so it takes usually between i've seen it's just anecdotal but between two and three weeks for people to just notice all the times that they reach for that coping skill. Some people write it down. My thoughts on mm, therapy homework are if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, it won't work anyway. So some people, they draw pictures or they write it down or they start journaling. Other people just notice it, but noticing without judgment, if possible, um, Hey, I'm doing it now. Hey, I'm doing it now. Why am I doing it now? Some people like to write down, um, they can write down what, what coping skill they used. And then the next is sort of like in a chart. And the next piece would be what happened. So just like you said, what was the trigger or the stimulus or what, what happened? Because sometimes we know when we do things and sometimes we don't really know why. So the first step is just noticing when is happening and how often, because sometimes people come the next week and say, holy moly, I thought that was a small thing, but you know, whoopsie, it's kind of a lot. Uh, And then, you know, then we can work from there. The next step after that is to figure out the triggers. So the first step is just sort of how often, you know, when, and then why, why is a much bigger question than when. Yeah, why kind of supports it all, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you don't ever figure out the why, it will come back. <laughs> what do you, um, so learning, obviously, I've been on your website, I've been following you on social media for a while, and an unconscious bias comes up. Oh, yeah. And I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about that. I can. That's what the book is about. <laughs> Perfect. So, yes, the book. Okay, so unconscious bias, um, for anybody listening that doesn't know what it is, 
is based on the idea that our brains take in billions and millions of pieces of information every second, and then we make snap decisions. Your brain does it about everything. It has to work that way, or we would just shut down because there's so much information coming. It does it about everything from what you see. Literally, your brain will filter out things it doesn't think are important, and you will not see them, to what kind of person is approaching you and whether or not they're a threat. And we all do it. It's completely natural. And so there's a lot of research going on about this idea of unconscious bias. There's a really cool website for anybody that wants to look. Um, it's free. And it's called the, it's through Harvard University. It's called the IAT test, implicit awareness tests. And they are so cool. They're really fast. You go in and you can find out about yourself and what your biases are. It's about body weight and race and culture, ethnicity, sexuality. It's amazing. You will find something out about yourself and be, I think, probably surprised. So we all do it. And I love the idea that we're talking about unconscious bias. However, what I have seen happening in my consulting work is that people find out they have bias and then they sort of do a little mini freak out and they shut down and get super clammed up because they feel not sure what to do next. They feel defensive or like, oh, I have these thoughts. And I'm part of my work is to say, of course you have these thoughts. That is how your brain works. They come from the very basic parts of your brain. However, at the same time, you have this magic gigantic front part of your brain that can control those thoughts. And so all you have to do is just know, again, being aware that those thoughts are popping up and go to yourself with some education and empathy. Hey, um, is that human being really a threat to me? Probably not. So, or what, you know, whatever it might be at work, whatever things pop up for you, but then being able to work through them. So this idea I call fluid EQ, it's based on the idea of, of emotional intelligence, but then it goes further thinking about and educating people how to use some self-awareness, education, and empathy to be more able to connect better with other human beings. That's actually the whole book in a nutshell. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say to people, yes, we all have bias. Yes, calm down. It's okay. It's important and we need it or your brain will just fizzle out. But also we can, we can control it and, and here's how. And it's simple because you know why? We can all learn to be more empathetic and we can all get more self-aware and everybody could use more education. So that's sort of the, um, the idea that I'm desperate to get out to the world so we can understand each other a little bit more because I feel that there's a big gap dividing us and we're letting these, these separations grow and I can't tolerate that. I don't mm -hmm. like it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's my goal to bring us to help people connect better. I love that. When's the book out? Um, I mean, you're in the editing state. Are you self-publishing or are you with a publisher? I don't know yet. So I've written three chapters and I talk to agents and I just keep writing and I'm hoping, I, I don't know. I actually don't know what's going to happen at the end. Maybe I'll publish it. When I'm done writing it, if I don't have a buddy, then 
I'll publish it. Mm. But if I do have a buddy, then they can help me. Yeah. That's oh. the, that's the answer. So I just keep writing. And when I feel like it's ready, then I'll send it out there. Amazing. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for that. I'm fascinated by it Thank already. You. It has a lot of words in the margins right now. <laughs> Every time I read it, I think, did I explain that clearly? You know, because I really want it to be accessible. And because it's a topic, it's a hot topic. And what I don't want is for people to feel uncomfortable enough that they don't, they can't be open. And I want them to be uncomfortable enough that they change a little, but not so uncomfortable that they shut down. So Yeah. Finding the balance. Through a book. <laughs> I'm pretty no sure. No eye contact. I am pretty sure you're going to get there. We'll see. i say it was a pretty certain, pretty certain shot. Um, I could talk to you for ages, but I know you've got a client. Um, yeah. So quickly, where can people find you? Where Give us all your, plug yourself. Oh, um, okay. So you can find me online. I have a website. Uh, it's www.drkellydonohoe.com. It's just D-R-K-E-L-L-Y-D-O-N-O-H-O-E. Dot com, And then my handle for everything, Twitter, Facebook, uh, um, Instagram, I love Instagram so much, um, is at same Dr. Kelly Donahoe. And, and if you, you know, anybody wants to reach out, I love to talk and hear, I like to hear a lot too. So, um, that, you know, reach out, that would be great. That's how we met. It is how we met. Absolutely. Um, it's been so great and hopefully I mean I'd love to have you back on when you're when you're further on with your book and we can chat more about it um, but for everyone listening make sure you go and follow Kelly and I'll pop all the uh, plugs underneath our show notes and um, that's us done for today so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for having me no you're welcome and uh, we'll see you soon bye bye, bye.